Welcome, Tom. Um, Good to be talking to you again, Mitch, as always. <laughs> Just uh, for a little historical data, uh, Tom Baines is former deputy prosecutor in Lake County, Indiana, 13 years. He's got 50 years of combined service up in Lake County doing uh, work as a prosecutor, a judge, and defense work. Uh, today, we've asked Tom to discuss the Indiana prosecution of Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. These folks are responsible for eight murders in four states in the summer of 1984. This case was discussed in my book, Badge Well Worn. Some of the names used in this book have been changed, including yours, Tom. So go ahead and uh, you can uh, give it a, a shot and explain your role. Well, I certainly remember Alton Coleman uh, and his uh, female underling, Deborah Brown. Uh, as you correctly summarized there, he was on a tear that particular summer, the summer of 84, leaving bodies across four states over a seven-week period. Uh, one thing that's not captured in the raw numbers, though, is the terror he generated in communities, particularly Black communities, uh, that particular summer. Coleman and Brown were a bit unique, well, for several reasons. One, they're Black. And uh, spree murders, serial murders, that sort of thing. On balance tends to be a Caucasian uh, phenomenon. Uh, so the fact that they were African-American was a bit unusual. Also, out of the ordinary here was the fact that Coleman and Brown, their identity as killers, plural, um, uh, as they killed when, while they were on their street, they were known to be the ones responsible for multiple deaths. A lot of times these things, you the law enforcement puts it together after the fact. In this case, um, our murder in Lake County was little seven-year-old Tamika Turks. Um, by the time that happened, that was number two in the spree. Uh, after that happened, Coleman was uh, front-page news in a lot of places. Um, front page above the fold with his picture. Uh, both he and uh, Brown were known, and it was known they left town. And nobody was quite sure where they were going. He would then pop up uh, in Michigan and then Ohio. And he was quite mobile, and nobody quite knew what to expect. And uh, people in the black communities in particular were looking over their shoulder constantly in fear that he would pop up in their name. So there were unusual aspects to that that made the whole thing horrible. Uh, as to the prosecution in Lake County, uh, was there a uh, organized coordination with the other jurisdictions and logistics and getting Coleman back to Indiana for the trial. You talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was decided that uh, Ohio would go first because they had the strongest cases uh, prosecution-wise. Uh, there were two, actually four murders in Ohio, two in Toledo, two in Cincinnati, and it was decided they would go with the two Cincinnati cases first. Then Coleman would go to us in Indiana. 
next and finish up with a position in his, on his uh, home turf in Lake County, Illinois, the Waukegan uh, in northern Illinois. Uh, so that was agreed, and it was all in large part based on uh, the strength of the case. Uh, Ohio's cases were, were certainly, in a relative sense, uh, much stronger than Indiana's, the one, the one you and I worked on. Um, what about Deborah Brown? Was she tried at the same time, either jointly with Coleman, or was she tried separately? There were separate cases uh, in Ohio for Brown and Coleman, separate cases in Indiana for Brown and Coleman. Uh, interestingly, in the Ohio case, um, Brown took the witness stand in Coleman's defense and essentially tried to take the weight, step the blame, and came across as a real, the word begins with the B. Um, she was especially malicious and venomous in her testimony, trying to exonerate Coleman. It was a, it didn't work. Didn't even come close. But uh, yeah, they had separate trials in the two. In our case, we did Coleman first, and then we did Brown about a month apart in 1986. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the actual details of the crime, uh, keeping it, uh, you know, presentable? Yeah. Uh, in the Indiana case here, two little girls, a seven-year-old Tamika Turks and her nine-year-old aunts. They were more friends than relatives, to be honest. But the two of them went out one afternoon to get, I think it was candy or a hot dog. I forget which, but in the process, when they went to a local business, um, Coleman and Brown saddled up to them and lured the kids with the promise of clothes. They then walked the kids a good mile uh, to a wooded area, secluded area, and by that point, the kids were obviously in deep trouble. Uh, Tamika Turks was both beaten and strangled. The coup de grace to her strangulation was actually applied by uh, Deborah Brown. Um, the nine-year-old aunt who survived it, survived the attack, she too was beaten and strangled, and she was sexually assaulted by both Coleman and Brown. And I mean viciously sexually assaulted. Uh, when a doctor um, later described in court the injuries she suffered as a result of that sexual attack, there was the loudest, most audible, spine-chilling groan from the audience that I've ever heard in five decades inside of courtroom. It was it was horrible. Uh, the older girl, though, the nine-year-old. Uh, she passed out. She was unconscious. I'm sure Coleman and Brown thought they'd killed her too, but they hadn't. She revived and stumbled out of the woods and was found by some um, people in the neighborhood and uh, became our key witness to the case. How did they connect um, Coleman early in this case with uh, the murder in Illinois, or did they? Yeah, uh, the, the nine-year-old and I think it was 
nine, Renita Wayne, young girl in in Illinois. She was originally from Kenosha, I think. Uh, her mother had let her go with Coleman, and uh, the last mom saw of her daughter. Uh, Coleman disappeared, missed the court date, and it was uh, obvious that he had something to do with Vernita's disappearance. He went from northern Illinois, just jumped the border here to our jurisdiction, northwest Indiana. Uh, we had people who saw Coleman and Brown in Indiana. We, The law enforcement was to identify the basement apartment where they lived, and it was in the vicinity of the route that the perps walked the little girls from the uh, hot dog stand into the woods. So Coleman's identity as a suspect uh, in the Gary case became known pretty quickly, too. Um, Identifications were attempted by the surviving nine-year-old. It's a little shaky. Uh, it wasn't the greatest identification. She did identify Coleman, uh, and I think Brown, too, if memory is correct. Uh, but it wasn't the strongest identification because it was a nine-year-old. Uh, badly shaken by, I mean, there was a lot of pressure on a nine-year-old girl to um, help identify and basically carry the weight of a prosecution against a serial killer. Um, I recall the Federal Bureau of Investigation became involved in this case, the Gary case, and um, I was in your office uh, with um, a special agent, and you, you guys were examining a piece of material. You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, Tamika Turks, the seven-year-old, had been strangled with uh, a ligature. And the ligature was the torn-off elastic edge of a fitted bedsheet. Uh, you know, a, a fitted bedsheet, particularly in the corners, will have a piece of elastic. Uh, there is a piece of fabric that is over the elastic, and that's where you tuck in the corners. Um, the ligature had been obviously ripped off of a fitted bed sheet, and the elastic edge with the, the fabric covering it had been tied around Tamika's neck. That's what killed her. Um, now, uh, we, as I said, we didn't have the greatest case or the strongest case initially. Uh, we were asking a nine-year-old girl uh, who was very reticent to begin with, a very shy girl very reserved girl, asking her to carry this whole case. So we were desperate for corroborating evidence, evidence that would back up the accusation that Coleman was responsible and Brown. Um, so we were on the hunt always for any evidence that might back up our witness. Now, the killing occurred in a wooded area. Uh, you're not going to get fingerprints there. You're not going to get DNA because DNA was not a forensic tool in 1984 at that time. Um, so the ligature was our best hope of finding something that would connect Coleman forensically to this killing. Okay? And the question was, where did he get it? Uh, I mean, it, 
probably was not going to be something he found out in the woods. Maybe, but um, it's probably not something he ordinarily carried in his pocket. So we were desperate to try to connect him to the sheet from which the edge had been torn. Um, somewhere there was a sheet that he obtained the edge, and we had a whole bunch of uh, sheets obtained from the apartment they were staying in. Nothing seemed to match his um, as far as we could tell, nothing the Gary police had grabbed anyway. Uh, we, at one point, were um, shipping, having shipped to us uh, sheets from Detroit, thinking maybe it was uh, something he later took to Michigan and deposited there when he uh, uh, killed Donna Williams, the third killing in the spring. Uh, but we were having no luck. And part of the reason we were having no luck, Mitch, was we were working from a false assumption. The ligature around Tamika's neck was white, pure white, I mean, all white. Um, and we made the foolish assumption that if the edge of the sheet was white, the sheet from which it had been ripped must also have been all white. Now, that's the kind of assumption a guy who doesn't do a lot of laundry would make. Perhaps, perhaps. I don't know that a woman would have made that assumption. Uh, uh, and maybe if I had done more laundry back in the day, I wouldn't have made that assumption. But we just were looking for a white sheet. We couldn't find it. So what you saw that day was us looking at the sheet. I'm sorry, we were looking at the ligature. And all of a sudden, I think it was the FBI agent or maybe it was my colleague rich cook who's the uh, my co-cop on the thing one of the two of them spotted some colored threads sticking out from the stitching of the edge of the uh, sheet i mean the ligature i mean as i said um, you have a piece of elastic and uh, there is uh, fabric that is uh, sort of a hem that is stitched over the elastic, and sticking out from the stitching was some colored fabric, some threads. So I think it was the FBI agent Tommy Allison took a pocket knife and slid open the stitching, and boom, a portion of the sheet was still tucked inside. Uh, yeah, and, I saw that. Yeah, and it was not white. No. It was a kid's bed sheet. Yeah. It had like a flower to it. Um, a whimsical kind of flower and maybe I think a whimsical kind of animal on it. But it was clear then we were looking for something entirely unanticipated. It was an elephant. Yeah. Like uh, a dumbo. Yeah. It's a kid's cartoonish kind of yeah. elephant. So uh, we looked again through all the sheets the Gary Police had obtained from Coleman's apartment. No match. But something rang a bell in my head. You know, you get, you know, you know, you've seen something before. You just can't place it. So we went through. I grabbed all the pictures I could that had been taken in the Coleman apartment in Gary. And bingo, there was on being used on a as like a sofa cover in the background of one of the pictures was some kind of whimsical kid's bed sheet 
with flowers and animals. And you couldn't see a whole lot of detail. We, we even uh, uh, put it under the microscope or under a magnifying glass to try to see, did it have a torn edge? And you couldn't really tell one way or another, um, given the nature of the photograph. Now, this is 18 months after Tamika was killed. It's, she was killed in uh, June of 1984. And you and I are in that room with the FBI agent Richard Cook and uh, January of 1986, as we're getting very close to trial. So uh, we decided to, uh, you know, we thought, hey, should we go out to the old Coleman apartment? What chance it might still be there? Damn right, we're going to go out there. Uh, I don't think any of us had any great expectations of finding it after 18 months, but we knew we had to try. So, uh, Cook and I, Cookie and I met you out at that apartment. It was uh, just maybe a half block off Ridge Road in Gary. And, uh, of course, different people are living there. Coleman and Brown had been living in the basement, uh, which was treated as an apartment. And I remember the first place we looked was the garage. Because in the garage was a pile of fabrics, uh, Towels and shirts and pants and linens of all kinds. This is January in northwest Indiana, and it was cold and raw. And in fact, I remember still, a lot of the things were frozen together almost, and it was hard to do it. And you, uh, um, you did something pretty clever there. You went to the kids who were living in the house, and you offered them a bounty, if I remember right, correct? Yeah, I, I've, uh, there was a, a, you know, a ten or eleven year old young man there, and he was he was extremely curious what we were doing, and uh, he offered to help. And I said, "I'll tell you what," uh, I gave him five bucks up front, and I said, "This is for showing your interest in helping us out." I says, "And there's another one of these five dollar bills if you find this match to this uh, bed sheet." Yeah, we had the photograph that yeah. showed the teeth that was sitting on as a sofa cover. And uh, off the kid went, and uh, at some point, I, he let out a holler, or he let out a scream. One, you might remember it better than me. The house was a mess. Uh, it, they had clothes everywhere, bedding, clothes. It looked like a tornado had gone off in the, in the area. I think our search, if we would have done a real detailed search, proper way would probably been there for days but uh this kid came back and he had the biggest grin on his face he says is this what you're looking for and there it was and he, he got the extra five too he didn't got, he? he sure did yeah the the sheet itself was the one in the picture that was obvious a whimsical cartoonish flowers and animals and uh we took it back to the office uh, to see if we could uh, spread it out and find an edge uh, that had been torn. And uh, sure, as the sun rises, uh, we found it. Um, and we were able to take the fabric that was tucked inside the, the elastic edge. There was the remnant. I sh I'll call it the remnant. And we put it up against the torn edge from the sheet itself. And it fit like a puzzle. In fact, that's the yeah. uh, 
Yeah, that, that, that's the term the FBI uses uh, uh, on these things. It's a puzzle match is what it is. And uh, it was, I still think of it to this day as a eureka moment. It's the uh, rush of adrenaline you get if you were to stumble across a five-pound nugget of gold, that kind of excitement. Because in that instant, I mean, in that microsecond, um, I knew Coleman was a dead man walking. I mean, her case had gone from shaky to to solid. Uh, uh, we had taken the noose around uh, Tamika's neck and turned it into the forensic evidentiary noose that was going to uh, get Coleman the death penalty. And that's exactly what happened at trial. Uh, we, I, I know we sent the the materials out to the FBI, and they did the official forensic match. Uh, they blew it up. And, uh, I still have them in my basement, the big uh, poster board of blow-ups of the match between the sheet at, at his apartment and the fabric remnant uh, around Tamika's neck. And the match it almost is at the microscopic level. You can see individual threads that by their length match up uh, from one to the other. I mean, it was a perfect puzzle match, and that was the end of any chance Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown had of uh, evading justice in, in that Lake County case. A little footnote. Uh, I, when I was called to testify regarding the finding of the sheet and the execution of the search warrant, uh, the defense attorney, which I believe was a court-appointed attorney, uh, who happens to be a, a friend of mine, uh, would you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. Hey, yeah, I'll, I'll, I want to say something here before I forget it, too. That uh, that night, the day we found the bedsheet, um, Cookie and I closed the bar. Uh, we got over-served that night. I don't think you joined us. Or if you joined us, you were uh, responsible and left, you know, at an early hour. But we ended up closing the bar that night. You know, uh, we had to be shooed out by the uh, bar people because you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Sometimes the high is so uh, I know. High. That was, that was a right. pivotal moment. Yeah, so yeah. eureka moment. Uh, let me get back to what you were talking about. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Well, it, it's it's. I don't know if it occurs in other jurisdictions, but there was a history in Lake County. Sometimes what defense attorneys would do is um, say something to the prosecutor or say something to the witness while making faces, but with their backs to the jury, hoping to bait the witness or the prosecutor into smiling or doing something similar in return, at which point the defense attorney would say, there's nothing funny about this, Miss Detective Mitchell. Dan, it was Dan Toomey. Yeah. Dan was a good I like Dan, too. But what Dan was trying to do was he had your friendship, and he was trying to bait you with uh, making some kind of uh, goofy face or reacting to his goofy face, at which point he'd have jumped on you and uh, 
jury couldn't see what he was doing to you. He was hoping to bait you, and then he would have uh, called you out. Um, I didn't fall uh, for it. Yeah, they didn't have much to work with evidentiary-wise in that case, so they were looking to, they were looking to do anything they can. Obviously, it didn't work. No, I, I uh, for a moment, I, I really thought Dan had lost it because he was making the most god awful faces I've ever seen, and he was like acting crazy. And I thought, well, he's flipping out yeah, right yeah. here in the courtroom. And I, I was really a little concerned about him moment but uh then i you know all these years i didn't know what he was up to and then last time we got together i told you about it and you explained to me what what his uh what his intent was and that it was something that was had happened before in some of the other trials yeah trial lawyers trial lawyers have a bit some of them have a bit of the professional wrestler in them, if you know what I mean. You know, putting on a show and trying to do something when the judge isn't looking or the jury can't see it. Uh, there's that kind of gamesmanship uh, that sometimes goes on uh, um, in the case. Hey, can I mention something about Coleman? Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned that his identity was known early on, and uh, uh, that's why he uh, got listed by the FBI pretty early in the case of one of the most wanted people. Um, Coleman did nothing to disguise his responsibility for the murders he was committing. In fact, he got to the point where he was advertising them. There was a uh, homicide killing, murder, of a woman named uh, Virginia Temple in Toledo and her young daughter. Uh, that was numbers uh, four and five in the sequence of eight. Uh, from there, he went to Cincinnati and killed a teenager named Tony Stone. The police officers told me uh, when I was working with them, there was a lot of coordination as we got close to trial. They told me that beneath Tony Story's body or in close proximity, to her was a bracelet that had been stolen during the temple homicides and that it was placed inside or beneath a floor duct and that it was placed there, not dropped there. It did not fall there. It was too big to have fallen through the grate. Coleman had to place it there himself deliberately. Uh, and what he was doing, of course, was advertising his responsibility. That's like, okay, I've struck again. Catch me if you can. He got that bold as these killings kept going. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen that. He was basically daring the cops at that at that point to uh, uh, to catch him. I another little sidelight on the FBI. You had mentioned. Uh became involved after the Gary matter. I, f- I found it interesting that the FBI listed Coleman and Deborah Brown on their 10 most wanted list. And actually, they became the 11th most wanted list. That was like only the rare occasion that the FBI ever lists more than 10. But that, I, think, yeah, case, I think that was part because of the public outcry. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, People in the Midwest were scared to death. I'm holding in my hot little hands the actual 
FBI poster to Walton Coleman back in the day. I still have it. But uh, yeah. yeah, that was interesting. I, a little tidbit, a little nugget that you know came out uh, years later. He actually got caught. Basically, he made a full circle. Started out in northern Illinois and came back to northern Illinois, and that's where he was caught. He was caught at uh, at a park in Evanston. Uh, when he was caught, he denied being Alton Coleman, um, and he was glib. I mean, he was glib. He was slick. He his mo essentially was to um, size up a person, find out what the person might be interested in and pretend to be interested in that too in order to get close to a person and put them at ease and have them drop their guard. When he was arrested, he did it absolute best to, to, to say, that's not me. And he was aided to some extent, not only by his demeanor, and, but um, uh, he had spent a lot of time outdoors in the seven weeks he was on the run. His skin had darkened, and he looked darker in person than he than uh, the Alton Coleman you see in that wanted poster, okay? Yeah. And for a brief period of time, he had some of the law enforcement, some of the cops up there wondering, is this guy really Alton Coleman? Of course, they didn't believe that too long because they checked his fingerprints sure enough he was but he did his damn best to uh to talk himself out of that arrest and uh he was slicker than most we'll put it that way he was not a dummy uh, no i always uh, excuse me smart. yeah i i got subpoenaed for the illinois case uh the lake county illinois case the homicide and they wanted to talk about the bed sheet match and Gary and uh, Coleman uh, was pro se in that trial. I mean, he he thought he was the smartest guy in the courtroom. Uh, he cross examined me and tried to challenge my uh, you know, accuse me of planting that bed sheet. And uh, but uh, it goes a little bit to his psyche, the kind of a person he was. Yeah, based on that that accusation, we knew that was coming. So we had the uh, uh, FBI lab did wonderful things for us in this prosecution. Wonderful things. One of the things they did was compare the actual bed sheet uh, that we found that one Jan cold January day to the bed sheet seen in the picture taken eighteen months earlier. Uh, it was like. The picture, the, the sheet was just kind of in the background, but the FBI lab was able to say that the picture, the sheet in the picture is absolutely the same sheet uh, that you see here in court, and, you know, the real fabric. And they were able to do that by microscopic and uh, ultraviolet or perhaps infrared analysis of certain stains on the sheet. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they pulled they pulled the uh, rug from Coleman's claim that we had planted the yeah. sheep. And we knew that was coming. Yeah, I was always eternally grateful for the work the FBI did uh, to help us out there. Tom, 
it's been a it's been a wonderful reunion talking to you about this case. I really appreciate you sharing these little inside baseball things about this case. Things like this nobody knows about. Hey, Mitch, I, I, I've got a picture of me and Cookie, my colleague, holding together the uh, remnant against the bed sheet to show the puzzle match. I'll get it to you so you can use it. Okay. okay? I really appreciate it. Hey, uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, we'll sign off now. And I'll look forward to, we've got a couple more cases we want uh, you to bring forward uh, in the future. And I know you've got a busy schedule the next few weeks. So we'll be seeing you when you come back. And hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to talk again. All right, buddy. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an episode of A Badge Well-Worn. My hope is that we have provided you with a glimpse of reality in the world of criminal investigations through the eyes of the people involved. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on future podcasts, please let me know by contacting me at my website at jem-books.com.